Good morning, church. My name is Brandon, and I am delighted to be opening God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Turn with me to John chapter 2. We will be in the first 12 verses of John chapter 2 as well as uh, before that because I want to dip back into chapter 1 after not being together last week. Um, It's really good to be with y'all. I'm really sad that the Titans lost. I'm just going to throw that out there. But uh, every... uh, I remember 1987, I believe it was, I had uh, this year... uh, uh, love affair with the New York football giants. I don't know why, but um, no, excuse me, with the Broncos. It was when the giants beat the Broncos in the Super Bowl. And my seven-year-old self just uh, just cried so, so much about that. And that was rather silly looking back at it. But I got to remember that yesterday as I watched my children absorb uh, the devastation that was a pretty poorly played game by the Titans. So yeah, moving on. Um, I was sad too. I was sad too. Um, you know, church, we, uh, Susan is right on, broken hearts about so much. It's been quite a, a two years. Um, there's so much pain in the world. We received devastating news yesterday that our sister in the Lord, Amy Coleman, who many of you know, uh, has been uh, battling cancer, and she uh, went to be with the Lord yesterday, and we pray for her and her family, her parents who live in Memphis, and we just mourn the loss of of loved ones. We uh, had a memorial service on uh, Tuesday. It was scheduled for Monday, but it was supposed to be Tuesday. But it ended up being Tuesday because of the snow for Miss Nadine Richardson, who so many of you know, who uh, went to be with the Lord as well a couple of weeks ago. And just I'm reminded every time I get to do a funeral, be a part of a funeral, be there, the things that we say about one another, we're so kind at funerals. We need to say those things before the funeral, you know, I read this week somebody remarked a similar uh, thing saying we should, we should make those comments at birthdays or weddings perhaps or just on a Tuesday. <laughs> it's not special for any means. But encourage one another the way that we do after we, we pass. We, we need that. Uh, speaking of weddings, Jesus went to one in John chapter 2. And it's a really wonderful story, and I'm delighted to be reading it with you today. So would you look into the text with me? I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Your translation is just fine, uh, but it may be different. Also, I'm reading from a 2017 version, and sometimes what comes on the screen is the 2020 version, which I probably should go by, but I like my Bible. So there's often a word or two that's inconsistent with what's on the screen, so I beg your forgiveness for that. But it's close. Starting in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Woman is actually an endearing term in the first century, so um, that doesn't sound great in 2022. Is it 2022? Goodness gracious. Um, but this was, that was not ugly of Jesus. He was just speaking matter-of-factly. My hour has not yet come, Jesus said. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. 
Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. They did what Mary told them. Or what Jesus told them. And Mary told them to do what Jesus told them. You get it. Verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Just pausing right there. That's a really poignant, beautiful picture of people who are seen as less than by the world, having some insight that the greater than head waiter didn't have. Cool part of the story there. There's so much cool about this story. (laughs) He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you've kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. May God add God's blessing to the reading of God's word. This passage begins with, on the third day. So with that, um, definitely may be some allusion there to the three days between Jesus' death, as you and I know, and his resurrection. It's also, I think, likely to just be matter of fact. And so I want to look back with you in chapter 1, as this says on the third day. Well, what about the first and the second day? And if we look back at verse 6, this is part of what uh, we didn't get to talk about last week um, with the the abbreviated sermon we had to put online because of the the snow. But in verse 6 of chapter 1, the text reads, there there was a man sent from God whose whose name was John. He, He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. It's a pretty cool connector with our offertory moment, huh? Those in the 1040 window, those anywhere so that all might believe through him, the light. John the Baptist was not the light, verse 8 says, but he came to testify about the light. If you travel on down in chapter 1 to verse 29, you see the text say the next day. So we're moving on here. First day John the Baptist was introduced, now we have the next day. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Twice John the Baptist says, I didn't know him, but I didn't know him. But verse 34, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look. The Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? 
they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Well, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who was one of the two who heard John and followed him, he first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, you're Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the town, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, come and see, Philip answered. See a theme in this story? Come and see. Let me tell you who this is. Verse 47, then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Would love that to be said about me. Verse 48, how do you know me? Nathanael asked. He's kind of full of himself. Get it? Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathaniel replied, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. More identifying of Jesus here. Verse 50, Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Well, you'll see greater things than this. Then he said, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God descending, ascending and descending on the son of man. And then chapter two begins on the third day. Powerful, powerful story here. What John is trying to get us to understand about the beginning of Jesus's ministry is John seeks to, to proclaim it. And it was, it was this testimony, this, this witness that John gives, John the Baptist gives, that helped the disciples stop what they were doing and follow Jesus. We talk so much about gospel conversations turning into gospel relationships. I hope that that rings in your ears when you hear me say it because we want to keep it at the forefront of our mind. This is how we want to go about living our lives, that the gospel that we understand and, and, and try to live out would be at the tip of our tongues and our relationships with one another, with those that we, that we meet. And it looks a lot like what we've read right here, that we would be helping folks identify, see Jesus. Because the point of John's gospel here, the point of relaying how all of this began is for Jesus to be identified, identifiable and identified in our lives. And then for those who identify him to devote our allegiance to him completely. Because let's be real, we're all following somebody or something. We are. We're putting our hope in something. John the Baptist, John the Evangelist, our gospel writer, the disciple, they, they know that somebody has to be Jesus. The disciples leaving everything and following Jesus is demonstrating that they believe that it is Jesus. It is the Messiah. It is the light that John the Baptist is talking about. It is the one we are to follow. Now, there's several types of witnesses that John 
delineates in his gospel that I want us to see because there's a through line through the entire gospel. And I want us to see these as we go about studying together this gospel over the next several weeks. There are actually seven different witnesses. And I bring up this word witness because it's back in verse 6 where John the Baptist is, is called as a witness to the light. That's what the text says. And John the Baptist is one of those witnesses. But the first one's the most important of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus testifying about himself. We have Jesus talking about the Father testifying about Jesus being his son. And we have the Holy Spirit testifying as well in John. So those are the first three. The fourth is the Old Testament scriptures that we understand as Old Testament scriptures. It was the Jewish scriptures, the scriptures that Jesus knew and studied, those that the disciples would have known, that point to Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus yet, but John, the evangelist, is helping us see that it's Jesus. John the Baptist is saying, hey, it's Jesus. This is the Messiah. So that's another witness. Another witness is John the Baptist himself, the precursor, the voice crying in the wilderness, the one that comes first to say, hey, (laughs) the light is coming. The kingdom is coming. Pay attention. It's not me. It's him. Behold the Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is a witness. And sixth is what we read about in John chapter 2. What happened at the wedding? It's, it's the works of Jesus. It's the signs that John calls them of Jesus. That is another witness. What, what is witness? Well, it's evidence. Maybe you like to watch uh, investigator shows as much as I do. Some of you may have grown up uh, watching Columbo or Perry Mason or Matlock. I'm partial to the uh, BBC series Endeavor. Maybe you're, if you don't know about it, I highly recommend it. It's good. But I like investigator shows where the point of the show is to figure out what evidence there is to convict the guilty party to remove them from the equation, right? They have done wrong. We must convict them. That's what evidence is. And evidence here is another word for witness. Or maybe you want to think about it this way. This is prescient in my life right now because we have a rule in our house. It's very important to me. It's a rule that, uh, uh, well, we don't eat anywhere other than the kitchen. Leslie Ann and I can because Leslie Ann and I have the ability to do that without, you know, dropping everything everywhere. Our kids have not mastered that yet. And if you want me to prove it, just come over. And when we have a rule that you can't eat Oreos in the den, you can see that we are not abiding in that rule. Why? Because there's evidence everywhere. Love you, kids. But it's like, you know, Hattie, that time she walked out of the kitchen trying to convince me she hadn't sprayed the whipped cream all over her face. But she had, because there was evidence, right? Well, that's a silly way to explain what John's talking about here. We, we, we need for there to be evidence for what Christ has done and what Christ is doing. And so John tells these stories. And a sign, Christ works, that's an important example of this. What is a sign? Well, it's a work, it's an act of Jesus that provides any, anyone who sees the sign an opportunity for insight into Jesus's identity. It's really important. And this story at the wedding has, 
so many teaching points, but I want us to be clear this morning about what the main teaching point is, I think, what, what God would have for us to, to understand about this today in this time and place, the insight that we are provided into who Jesus is. It's a sign. It's a, it's a work of Jesus. John wants us to see that right here at the beginning of his gospel, what we will hear later in the gospel, that the only way we can identify and meet God is by the gracious doing of Jesus Christ. What God has done for you and me through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is our salvation. Life in Christ. Salvation. Um, Being made whole, which is what God is doing for us, it doesn't cost us. It costs Jesus. No matter what you've done or left undone, when God looks at you, God sees Jesus. And I think along with a lot of it else, this is what the story of the wedding at Cana can help us understand. I pray that it helps us understand whatever you've done or left undone. When God looks at you, that's not what God sees. God sees Jesus. When I was a kid, this point was made clear to me by the illustration that maybe you've heard. It's the baseball card analogy. I collected baseball cards as a kid. We didn't have all of the games that are on these phones back then. So I actually collected and looked at baseball cards. And on the back of baseball cards, what were there? There were statistics. And you could see what Rob Deere did in 1986, 1987, 1988, 1989. He struck out a lot. That's what Rob Deere did. I remember that very well. But you could see those stats. And it was made clear to me that if there was a baseball card with you on it, when God looks at the, when you look at the back of it, God has replaced your stats with Jesus's. And they're perfect. And, and that's maybe you think a silly way to look at this, but it's true. Whatever you've done or left undone, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. Maybe you know that today. I forget it. I live with a great deal of shame and I shouldn't at all because of what God has done through Jesus. Look back at verse nine and verse 10 in chapter two. When this story comes to its, uh, well, it's prime moment. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. You see what's happened here? Recently I saw a new um, detergent commercial. It stuck with me because they were showing their brand and then they put the competitor's brand next to it. And the brand that the commercial was about, it had the, the colors and it was full of, you know, what looked like, you know, the goopy, you know, detergent. And the other brand was far more syrupy and not as defined color. And they were saying the other guy is practically all water, but ours is not. Well, this was all water. And then it became very good wine. 
The implication in the text is that the guests didn't deserve the tasty stuff. It was wasted on their inebriated selves, a a lavish amount provided for those who the world might otherwise say did not deserve it. Well, church, that is grace. That is the gospel. And I must tell you, church, that is how many of us have understood the gospel and the extent of the gospel. But it is much, much more than that. To believe in Jesus as the great worker of signs, wonders, etc. is not John's purpose in telling us this story about the wedding. It's a wild, very hard story to believe, right? I'm convinced that those who witnessed it, when they told of it, they certainly met their skeptics or their deniers, right? Let me tell you about what happened at the wedding. I said, that didn't happen. No way. Yes, it did. I was there. No way. Not possible. Well, what do you do? Well, you can't prove it. You can't just talk louder. I've tried that. Needing to prove it misses the point of faith. Those who serve as witnesses are gifted insight into who Jesus really is. And sure, it takes some faith on the front end. We have to be open to the possibility of God doing amazing things. We have to be willing to believe in what is difficult. We have to understand that it will always be reasonable for someone to look at us and cry to us that we are believing a fairy tale and we need to stop. Don't deny that. That is reasonable for people to say. But John the Baptist didn't believe it was a fairy tale. John the evangelist did not believe it was a fairy tale. The disciples who chose to drop everything and follow Jesus, they didn't either. Jesus' family and friends, who the (laughs) group I just mentioned was probably with him at the wedding, they did not believe it was a fairy tale. They followed him. They testified to who he was and what he was doing and what he is still, still doing. Jesus is not a circus act trying to get followers. He's not a TV personality that we've all seen. That's main goal is to try to get you to mail in a check. That is not who Jesus is. He is the very son of God, the Messiah. He is the light that John the Baptist is testifying to. And what this means for us is complex. It is more beautiful than I dare say any of us have imagined. And we do not need to reduce it to something that it's not. This story tells us amazing things about Jesus, but it's not the story in itself that we must stop at. We have to look through it and understand who Jesus really is. He's not a circus act performing signs and wonders. He was even reticent to do this when Mary asked him to do it. It's bigger. It's better. It's working on us. God's love for us has no limits. To say we understand God simply by what this story tells us, that sets limits. That's a longer sermon. But the product of this is new wine. And it's not just a little bit. It's not a tasting. It's not, hey, come and, 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 and taste this. Isn't it so good? It was as much as they could have wanted. Sure, that has its problems. Definitely. The picture it paints for us. Cisterns overflowing. More wine than could be imagined and not the boxed kind, but the best kind. That is what God is like. 
Or think about it as an incredible amount of food if you want to. I love to think about it that way. Leslie Ann, last night for the football game that we lost, I mentioned that. She made a charcuterie board. It was unbelievable. It had all this stuff on it. It was the most beautiful thing we've eaten in a long, long time. Our kids didn't know what to do with it, but I did. I'm reminded of what comedian John Chris says about charcuterie boards. Maybe you've heard of it. I think it's hilarious. He says it's a grown-up Lunchable. <laughs> so true. But this thing had everything. Figs, apricots. I don't know how to pronounce the meats, but you know what I mean, that you put the cheese on had everything. It reminds me of the story that I've told y'all before, but it's a good one. It's when Cheryl and Fred, Americans who lived in Arizona, they went to, um, well, they went to Haiti to pick up their daughter who they adopted, Addie. She was five years old and she, um, she had lost her parents in an automobile accident about a year or two before. And Fred and Cheryl went to get Addie and they flew home with her. And she began her new life with them in Arizona. And that night they sat down at the table. Now Cheryl and Fred had two sons, grown sons, teenage sons, Thatcher and Roland. And they began to have supper. They had pork chops and mashed potatoes for supper. And Addie looked at the pork chops masterpiece and she had never seen so much food. She was blown away. But then what happened is these big, huge teenage boys, that reality is starting to happen in our house too, which will be good for me ultimately. I'll eat less. But they began to eat so much, so fast. And Addie just watched as the mashed potatoes and the pork chops went away very quickly. And Fred and Cheryl saw in Addie's eyes what was happening. You see... Where Addie was from, when food goes away quickly, that's a big deal. Because there may not be more food very soon. And Cheryl recognized this. She took Addie's hand and she, she stood her up. She said, I want you to come over here with me to the pantry. And she opened the pantry door and she showed her the onions and the canned vegetables. And all the cereal and all the things that you keep in the dry places. And then she walked her over to the refrigerator and she opened it up and she showed her the cartons of eggs and milk and fruit, vegetables that need to stay refrigerated. Then she opened up the freezer. She showed her gallons of ice cream and fish and chicken. And she looked at Addie and she said, honey, no matter what your brothers eat, how much or how fast, We are not going to run out of food anytime soon. So rest assured. Now church, whether it's food in the pantry or wine in the cisterns, this is what God's love for us is like. I need you to know that today. Now, it's also important to recognize that Jesus paused before he did this sign in this story. And I I think that's important because he knew that it was not quite yet time for what he was ultimately going to do for us to be revealed. That was coming later, the end of John's gospel. Yet he did it anyway. So here we have this picture in this story 
of Jesus giving a glimpse of what he ultimately would do. And that, that leads into our reality today, because just as Susan said in the offertory time and what I know each of us is carrying to some extent on our hearts as we walk in here this morning, we are not okay, right? To just come in here and say that the wine is overflowing or the pantry is so full, that's not the whole story right now. If we just look at the way things are, that would make me less than believable. So we have to keep it real. Things aren't yet as God would have them to be fully. But then in another sense, they are. The promise of what God has done and is doing in Jesus is real, yet it's just not fulfilled. Well, that's why I tell you this all the time, but that's why we have to have each other to walk one another around the kitchen, to remind one another of the reality because we lose sight of it. We think that God's love for us is going to run out or we don't even believe it in the first place. And we have to hold on to that. Because it is what is true. And why does it matter? It matters because there's a last witness in the gospel of John. You know what that witness is? It's you and me. It's the ordinary people that John will give us a glimpse into as we move through this gospel together. But it includes you and me. We are those set apart to help the whole world. All the people be able to identify Jesus, just like the sign, we are called, set apart to be those witnesses, to be that very evidence so that the world may know that no matter what they do or leave undone, there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. N.T. Wright says it this way. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. This, This is a good mantra for us as we go through the gospel of John, because we're trying to point people to Jesus. That's what John was trying to do. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus and go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually a part of the drama, which has him as the central character. I pray that you know that today. We're going to sing. We're going to actually move into a time of prayer and we're going to hear a beautiful song together you can sing along if you want there are no rules but let it wash over you let the truth of this story the truth of the gospel the truth of what John's trying to accomplish in helping us identify Jesus wash over you during this time I pray that you have been pointed to Jesus just, just pray for you and for me that we will truly know what the gospel is together.